Welcome back to FYI, the four-year institution podcast presented by Mongoose. I'm your host, Gil Rogers, and today we're going to listen in on a conversation I recently had with Perry Halkidis, Dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health, published author, and board chair of the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health, or ASPPH. We dive into a number of topics, but the title is Preparing the Public Health Workforce for the Next Global Pandemic. Perry shares some thoughts on how public health professionals need to be better prepared to leverage technology, as well as interpersonal skills, and how the public as a whole can better support these professionals during what are truly trying times. Let's listen in. Hey, Perry, how's it going? Hey, good morning. Good to see you. It's going really well. Thank you. Good. I'm glad. So for our listeners, I know you wear many hats and I would love to, I know we did a little brief intro, but would love to hear from you in your words, what all the different hats you wear. I think that would help our listeners get to know you. Yeah, thanks for that. So I am am the Dean of the School of Public Health at Rutgers University, where I've been the Dean for the last seven years. I am by training an applied statistician, a math guy, but I'm also an infectious disease epidemiologist and a public health psychologist. So I have training in education and in public health and in uh, psychology. So my work all comes together to do this work around mostly communicable diseases, infectious diseases, my research, but by day I run the school as an administrator. Awesome. Well, it's great to have someone with such a broad spectrum of experience. And I know what we're going to be talking about today is mainly the topic will be preparing the public health workforce for the next global pandemic, which I know seems a little sky is falling type of a title, but I think it's a very important topic given the experiences that we've had over the last few years. I'd love to hear from you a little bit about how did you get to where you are? What's the path that brought you here in that cross-section of education and policy and mental health, right? I'd love to hear your story. The story I tell to doctoral students and to postdocs and people early in their careers is that the direct path is not always the best path or the easiest. It is not necessarily the most interesting path. And so my story is a story of a circuitous path that got me to this point in my career. But I will tell you that I was in college at pre-med like so many children of immigrants. I thought that was the only option for me. I realized I didn't really want to be a medical doctor. I found myself then at a crossroads trying to decide what I was going to do with my life. I ended up becoming a science teacher for elementary school students, which I think is one of the themes that probably will come up again today about teaching science to young kids. And during that time, decided I would do a doctorate in applied statistics because I loved research. And I did it in a psychology department. So I've got the psych there, I've got the education piece there. And then what became clear is as I was growing up, you know, I was a young man, a young gay man coming of age in New York City in the like 1980s, early 1990s. I had this life by day as a academic, uh, a scientist, an applied statistician, and by night as an activist working around the HIV epidemic in New York City and, and trying to advance the issues that we were all facing and, you know, the personal ways that the disease affected my life and the people around me. And so in like 96, I decided to like sort of do what you're supposed to do, which is like ship careers. And I decided to become the head of research at GMHC, which is world's oldest and I think still largest aid service organization. Did that for two years, was recruited by NYU. And then after 20 years at NYU and found myself at Rutgers doing this, you know, the work that evolved into originally HIV work, more focused on LGBTQ population, but ultimately infectious disease work focused on the population. So it's like this path that got me there has just been this really interesting path. And I think I know I've ended up in this place where I need to be right now. That's awesome. That's a great journey to showcase. I, I love having guests on that have this 
origin story that is they're working in a role and in a world where they're supporting something that is close to them and has been a part of their life for a long time. I think that there's important elements to really consider here. So I know you're very involved with the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health. I'd love for those who may not be familiar with that association, what does it do? What's its role? And what's your role in it? Sure. So I'm currently the chair of the board of the Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health. I was the chair elect last year. I'll be the past chair next year, starting in March. The organization uh, was founded to bring together all of the educational entities, both schools and programs that provide public health training to students in the United States and now more broadly to the globe. So it is a conglomerate, it's an educational organization focused on the education of public health, on academic public health, and how we think about our programs, how we deliver our instruction, what we need to do to make sure that students are aware of public health as a potential career, but also how we make sure that our delivery of our courses and the, the way we're teaching our students is relevant and modern and addresses the public health needs of society. So we work very closely with the American Public Health Association, with our accrediting agency, which is SEEF. And we do work that is focused on the training in schools and programs around public health, both at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level. And so this year, I'm uh, the chair of the board of this organization that is really, really a, a proactive group that's thinking about issues, not only about public health, but public health as it relates to social justice and diversity, equity, inclusion, and public health as it relates to artificial intelligence. These are all of the things we're tackling right now and thinking through what our educational programs look like moving forward. Great. And if you could define programs of public health, I know that especially during the COVID pandemic and mm -hmm. also with when I, I think about my kids with devices and access to information and there's a, it's a broad term, right? When we, we talk about programs of public health for the layman's term, what are programs of public health and what types of institutions are offering them? Yeah, so... The organization has over 150 members. There's probably close to 200 plus schools and programs. So the difference between the two are the following. Schools are entities, they're self-contained units like mine, the School of Public Health at Rutgers University, which is a school. I'm the dean of the school and we are a standalone entity within the, in the university. Then there are programs which are somewhat smaller, which are departmental level structures that exist within other schools that provide public health training. So what do I mean by public health training? By public health training, I mean either at the undergraduate level, a degree in public health, or what is the most popular or most, what was a the, orig the original degree that sort of emerged as uh, something for students to pursue, the master's in public health, the MPH degree. Now, many of the schools and programs also offer doctoral programs, PhD programs, and DRPH programs, but the MPH is some in some ways the bread and butter of the public health field. And when you see people's titles and you often see MPH after it, and it is the degree that is viewed as critical for anybody doing the work that we're doing in our field. And so we train students in that regard, both at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level. Great. Awesome. And that I hope that helps our audience with kind of getting a baseline understanding as we turn to the, the next phase of our conversation here in a little bit. So last question before we take a break is... I need to understand from you, this is the fun part of the, mm -hmm. of the conversation a little bit, is how do you deal with the traffic in the New York metro area, living and working between those two areas? 
I mean, oh. I, mean I mean, things are things have gotten so much more complicated over the last twenty years. So, first, just full disclosure: born and bred New Yorker, right? Mm-hmm. New York City guy through and through. Well, yeah, I'm not like a guy who came to New York later. I was born here. I was born in Astoria General Hospital, like in Queens. I've been here my whole life. I did all my degrees here, you know. And like driving was just part of our my repertoire as growing up. I will tell you that. The last few years with congestion pricing and the bicycle lanes, it is impossible. However, for someone like me, it was always difficult, right? So I just like navigate it, right? I'll tell you what drives me the most nuts about driving in the city. And I, I, I live in New Jersey during the week when I'm doing my work and I come to the city on the weekends where my family is. But when I drove and I drove again last night, before I came to New York, there's this like, I live all the way down in the financial district, right? So at the tip of the island of Manhattan, which is the original New York City, right? So very, very Mm -hmm. narrow, very narrow streets. And for anybody who knows London and New York, it's like the streets are all like tiny, right? They're not like the grid we're so used to in New York City. But there's the bull, the, the Wall Street bull, which is like, for some reason, a popular tourist attraction. I don't know why, but it is. And there's often dozens and dozens of people there standing around the building taking pictures. And somehow you have to drive through this, I don't want to say like 10 foot drop lane past them while they're sitting in the street. So it's chaos down there, right? And yeah. more often than not, I find myself thinking, oh my God, let me find another way because the last thing I need to do is like have like public health dean run over somebody looking at the bull in New York City. So mm-hmm. I navigate it because I've no, I know no difference, right? So when I go to other cities and there's like these big open roads, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Wonderful. My family is originally from Connecticut. And so we, we do trips into the city from time to time. But then when you're driving up Merritt Parkway back up to Connecticut, it just starts, you get the trees on the side. And it start, I mean, obviously traffic there gets nuts too, but right. it's, it, it opens up a little bit more and more. And then Connecticut becomes the parking lot that's between New York and Massachusetts. But that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. And I just, look, okay, I just came back from London, which I think is also congested, but it just feels different, right? It feels like somehow they've like managed it better. Sure, there's less people. Sure, there's a much smaller population, but sort of this like chaos of New York. I'm never really honestly afraid of having an S speeding accident in New York City because I'm not sure I ever go more than 10 miles an hour right. driving here. Benefits. There's benefits to yeah, all. Exactly. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into the topic uh, of the day, which is you know, preparing the public health workforce for the next global pandemic. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Thoughtfully nurture applicants, personalize retention efforts, and exceed fundraising goals with our Cadence Engagement Platform's text messaging solutions. Designed exclusively for higher ed by higher ed professionals, Cadence helps you engage your audiences with the perfect balance of AI and personal connection. We leverage an intuitively designed interface and easy to use texting templates so you can have targeted conversations or scale up to expand your reach. Our powerful smart messaging can respond automatically, exactly how you would. And to measure progress, track your campaigns with unparalleled reports and analytics. Effectively meet your community where they are as we proudly feature an industry-leading 95% read rate within three minutes. It's never been easier to make every message count. All right, we are back and we are with Dean Perry Halkidis from the Rutgers School of Public Health who is an avid driver through New York City and makes it through traffic and survives. We were talking about pairing the public health workforce for the next global pandemic. And I think before we look to the future, 
maybe we should go to the past a little bit and talk about kind of the, how we got to where we are in the current state of affairs. And, I, and we're in a unique time on the back end of, and I hate to use the term unprecedented, but we'll use the term unprecedented, the unprecedented global pandemic that we went through and the strain and the stress that was put on our public health systems. So, Harry, I'd love for you to, to give us a little bit of kind of that ground level insight, what we faced, the challenges, what you observe, and then we can talk about what we've learned and we can apply moving forward. So I, I love this question because I think it's a complicated one. And I'm in the middle of the final chapter of a book I'm writing right now, which is called People and Public Health, How Americans Created the HIV and COVID-19 Pandemics. And it really focuses on trying to shift the dialogue from the pathogen to the people who pass the pathogen on and what role we played as citizens and politicians and family members in creating these pandemics. So stay tuned for that. I'm close to finishing. But- you know, public health is one of those areas that when you are tightening your belt, as was the case in the beginning of the 2000s, late 1990s, the funding to public health got more cut, 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 cut. Mm-hmm. It seemed like one of those things that just seemed superfluous and unnecessary. And, you know, these are the things that often happen when you have organizations that are trying to like reduce their budgets. And so we found ourselves in 2019, right before the pandemic hit, in a, in a place where the infrastructure for public health was extremely lean, particularly at the local level. So when you think about small towns and municipalities and small states, it was where a lot of the public health work happens, right? Because it's not all federally controlled. We had organizations that had one or two people trying to run like the health issues for a whole a whole area, right? And it was, you know, we anybody, you didn't have to be Nostradamus to know that if something bad happened, right? Boom. Like it's kind of, to take it back to the parking analogy, if you're like on the Van Wyke, for those of you who are in the New York area, which is the highway that takes you to the JFK, God forbid there's somebody who's like stuck because there's no like side lane, right? So like you are like just stuck there like mm-hmm. for hours and hours. So it's the same thing. That's my analogy here, which is like you, this was working fine until it wasn't working fine, which is what the crisis is, what happened with the COVID pandemic. So so that's, that sets the stage for what happens in 2020, 2021, 2022, where we get bombarded with this reality, right? I was like, for me as a young man, the 80s and then going through this in, with COVID later on was just like, oh my God, this is like deja vu to me, what's going on here. But there was this scrambling to do the work we needed to do to keep people healthy. Now, at the same time, what was a little different this time, although not completely different, was that there were these political realities that were shaping the way people were reacting to the pandemic. And that made the job of already overburdened, exhausted, minimally resourced, underpaid public health individuals get even more worse because now they were being attacked. So you got this, the, the country saw the manifestation of that, like the attacks on Tony Fauci. But imagine, and Tony Fauci is like this superb guy who like, you know, has a good living and like is, you know, very, very powerful in his position, was very powerful in his position. But can you imagine you're like a $40,000, $30,000 person working in a department of health and you're just trying to do your work, which is get people vaccinated and keep people safe and you're being attacked. And so what happened was that there was this great departure as there was for many professions, but particularly for public health over the course of the pandemic and then shortly thereafter from public health. And we find ourselves now even in a more difficult position because one, we are under even understaffed now because people are not there to do the work. But two, trying to convince people 
that public health matters and that if a field in public health is a field, a, a career in public health is a career that they should have. But I think we're struggling because we have all these other forces that are diminishing the importance of public health. And you know, if you're a 90 year old student or a 16 year old student or a 24 year old student or a 40 year old student, you're thinking, why would I go into this area when I'm going to be as attacked? So that's where we are, right? And that's what we're struggling with right now to figure out how to make sure public health gets its rightful place in society. And at the same time, making sure that the politics align. One more point. Over the course of the last 30 years, also, there's been other really interesting phenomenon going on, which is like very often, medicine, which thinks it's the center of the world, has tried to usurp the identity of public health. Mm. And so medical doctors think they're public health people, which they're not, right? They're clinicians and they're wonderful, but they're not public health people. And so we are now also being challenged by another discipline, which is trying to do the work that we should be doing instead of doing the work with us. Well, and I think to bring it back to the comment about people working in public health, being attacked and the stresses Mm. of their overburden with the influx of people to help, I take a step back and I look at industries like education, nonprofits, and obviously public health falls into that category of the people who enter these fields don't necessarily do it because they are looking for jobs that are going to pay them millions of dollars every year. They do it because they're mission-driven. They care about people and they want to help people. And to, to turn on that group of people that, like you said, are just trying to do their job with the best information that they have in that moment and make it and make it a challenge for them. That's what leads to, and you look at other industries with great resignation and you look at if people can make more money and have less stress in other careers, that's a bad recipe for health of that industry and of those programs. I mean, I, I think that the analogy of education is perfect, right? I mean, I was a school teacher at one point in my life. So I, I know the challenges of being a school teacher every single day and being under-resourced and having 40 kids in your class and all of that. And I think that and when parents are attacking you, which I'm not saying was the case for me, but when parents are attacking you, well, you ask yourself, why am I doing this, right? Or when you're asked, like so many teachers, including my husband, who is a school teacher, who is asked to like, do Zoom meetings with all day long with children who are in these homes who, who can't even focus when they're in the classroom, makes it a really difficult situation. So yeah, let's not attack the people who are trying to help us, right? And just, mm-hmm. this is like, the, you know, and that's all we were trying to do during, like, we don't, like, Let's be frank. Nobody wanted to wear masks. I didn't want to wear a mask, but I did. But I was just trying to keep people healthy. And so, so being attacked for trying to keep people healthy, for thinking about the good of the whole over the good of the individual, which is, I think, honestly, what which should have been the focus of our work, created a very difficult situation. And, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration didn't help, right? Because, like, it put the onus on us as being the bad people and basically made, you know, individual rights the most important thing in the world. And that's just a mix, mischaracterization of what individual rights are and civil rights are and personal rights are when you're living in a civil society. I mean, I went to Columbia and did an undergraduate degree there. And I, you know, I'm steeped in the humanities. There's a course of studies that all undergraduates do at Columbia, which is like the core classes, like contemporary civilization, stuff like that. And I just remember reading all of those works by like Rousseau and others about the social covenant, right? And when you make a decision to be part of a society, make a decision to be part of a society is that you give up certain rights, right? For the good of the whole. And I think we've sort of lost that. Uh, and that was what what led to so much of the attack that public health people were facing. Yeah, and I think sometimes there winds up being truth somewhere in the middle and we focus yeah. on the fringes, right? But I feel like in a perfect world, the, the vast majority of people are somewhere in the middle of this spectrum, but we 
the fringes is where the entertainment is. And it's where the, it's like watching a car wreck, like you can't pay, right? And so when, when there's the conversations on the far ends, that's what gets all the media coverage. That's what gets all of the attention because it's it's a attention grabbing thing, right? Right. And it's, it's exactly right. And we know from statistics is regression towards the mean. So most people are in the middle somewhere. Right. But, you know, I mean, the question I, I'll, I'll even, I'll take that idea and like add something to it, which is like, what role does the media then have in, in all of this? Right. So if you like cater to the extremes and you're not focusing on the middle, most people are in the middle. But if you're catering to the extremes, you're going to miss a, a big part of the country. I also like have talked about for a very long time in my own research, which is like, I did a lot of work around meth and HIV, methamphetamine use in HIV in the early 2000s. And my focus was like, I was trying to shift the dialogue. Why are we focusing on the people who are using this drug instead of focusing on the people who are not using this drug, which is the vast majority? And what are they doing to not use it? Why are we focusing on why people use it? And so this is... <laughs> positive psychology, you know, a strength-based, not deficiency-based approach is what we should be focusing on in public health. And the media need to join us in that and like focus on what people are doing right and not what people are doing wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But in the age of social media and clickbait and all those sorts of challenges, we have to, it takes a a village to Mm -hmm. change, make those changes. So that's a lot to unpack. And then what we're going to do is we'll take a break. And when we come back, what we'll do is we can talk about the future and what what some lessons learned, how we can apply them and build on the conversation that we've just started. So awesome. take a break and be right back. Grow your student community, help them stay and encourage giving with Cadence, higher ed's premier engagement platform from Mongoose. Designed exclusively for higher ed by higher ed professionals, Cadence helps you engage your audiences with the perfect balance of AI and personal connection. Talk to students, parents, and alumni on their time and how they want. Empower your staff with integrated text and chat inboxes that gather all conversations in one place. Reach out to learn more about how our best-in-class service, support, and integrations have helped colleges and universities like yours have smarter conversations. From text to chat, make every message count. All right, we are back and we're talking about the how are preparing the public health workforce for the next global pandemic? And in our last segment, Perry, we, we dove in about a lot of the challenges that the workforce faced, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but also prior to that under-resourcing and stress. I feel like it was just compounded during um, that time. And now we're in a, a world where we brought up the issue and the, the challenge with media around these challenges and the role society as a whole needs to play, rethinking how we support these professionals. And we drew parallels from industries like education and others where we have mission-driven people who are at, at their core, they go into these positions and, and roles because they want to help people and they want to support society. And so for society to under support them and put more stress on them and attack them is not a recipe for longevity for that type of work because people will flock to other uh, opportunities where they might be treated better. And so I'd love your thoughts on, on what the future needs to be and what needs to look like. We're solutions focused here at the FYI podcast. And so what solutions that we might have to, to support and overcome these challenges over the next few years? Yeah. So that's a multi, I think like a complex question that has multi-level answers, because I think that there's, I, when I think about interventions and I think about change, I think about systemic and then interpersonal and then like the personal level changes we need to make in order to advance all this. But I'm going to focus on a couple of things that I've been thinking about and writing about. And I'm going to focus, first of all, um, on the focus, the focus in public health has often been 
on policies. And I think there has got to be much more focus on the individual person. And I think what we learned over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic is that one size doesn't fit all. So when you say vaccine hesitancy to me, and people have asked me this on interviews, they're like, what's vaccine hesitancy? hesitancy?" And I'm like, what population are we talking about? And so I think that requires a shifting of the kind of paradigms and theories we use in thinking through public health, which focus not only on cognitions, making just meaning decision-making, which I've been saying now for like, I'm going to say 30 years, this idea that human beings make rational decisions. No, they don't. Human beings don't make rational decisions all the time. And I remember very early in my career, in like 1998, I think I was at a CDC meeting and I was doing, getting, had this huge grant on HIV work. And I was in a meeting and there was all these like important people there. And I was like this little young researcher there. And they were talking about developing an intervention because if you increase people's self-efficacy, which is an idea in, in, in one of the social learning theories, which has come out of Al Bandura's work, that if you, you increase people's confidence in their ability to do something, they would do it, right? So if you increase the people's confidence or their self-efficacy to do to use condoms every time, they would use condoms. And my response was like, but not three tequila shots in, right? So what role does emotion play? What role does like socialization play? What role does psychological realities play? Is something that public health has not thought about and needs to think about. Mm -hmm. And this is what this book is about that I'm writing, right? And I'm privileged because I live in this public health psychology space to be able to think this way, right? But to me, like thinking about how human beings act is critical. Telling them they're bad because they don't get vaccinated doesn't help. Understanding why they don't want to be vaccinated is an important issue, right? People don't just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to be a meth addict or I'm going to be an anti-vaxxer. They get there during the course of their lives, right? And so what is it in their past that gets them there and how do we work with that? That's a huge undertaking, but it means thinking about public health differently. That's number one. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to keep pushing this agenda because I think that it has to be. It has to be person, emotion, cognition-based. It's just not going to work otherwise. Number two. Because, no, let me just actually say one more thing. Because this notion, and this is what I worry about, the over-medicalization over or the over-biomedicalization of public health, which is like, okay, we have a vaccine, so now the problem's solved. No, because there's human behavior involved. And anytime human behavior is involved, it's not just about like, it's going to solve the problem, right? It's, just not, it's, not, it's not a lab with mice in it. We're humans. Okay, number two. Public health also at the academic level needs to rethink how we train our future students, right? And so for me and I'm speaking for myself as a person, as a public health person, but as an activist also, I think our students, of course, need to get the core skills that they're getting now, but they also need to learn how to do the following things. How do they speak to the community? How do they speak to politicians? How do they write for lay audiences? How do they interact with people and are, be able to be forceful if they're asked to present at their local political entities or at the federal entities or in the newspaper to communicate effectively to, in a way that's compassionate and not derogatory, right? And engages people to actually change their behavior. And I don't think we do that particularly well in any field. I think medicine doesn't do it particularly well either in dealing how you do provide patient care. But I think thinking about the curriculum so that it is much more focused on how we have students actually working out there with people is big. But I want to add one second piece, which is the more radical piece, which is like public health has to be more activist too. It's just like when you think about what changed the AIDS epidemic, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, it was activism, right? And I think activism has to be at the heart and soul of public health. It doesn't seem like, oh, well, but how does it fit into school? And my argument would be like teaching people advocacy and activism has to be part of the curriculum. 
mm-hmm. right? And otherwise they're just like pushing buttons. When I, honestly, frankly, when I got to Rutgers about seven years ago, people were doing public health work, really good work, but they were doing it behind computers. And my response was, I can't, this school has to change. This school has to be about people being in the public, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at my folks who are there now, they're out there engaging with people all the time. That's what we need to do much more of, I think, if we're going to change the uh, change thing. And then a third thing I would say is like, People who have training like myself and people who have public health experience need to think about politics as an area for their future, right? If we have people making decisions who have no idea what is going on with public health, then they're going to continue to make bad ideas. Last point, and this is just my corollary point, which is my point that uh, I wish I can just have a magic wand and change it. We've got to think also about how we're training kids and how we're educating kids, right? So we know over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a focus on reading and math at the expense of science and civics and social studies, totally. And look what happens. You have a pandemic and people don't even know what the science is. They don't understand that there's three branches of government. And so I'm challenging this education system of elementary schools and high schools to like rethink their focus and stop worrying so much about spelling and focus more on how they create like citizens who are engaged and knowledgeable about science and about civics. So. Those are the things that I think get us potentially moving forward in a way that we are better prepared for the next pandemic. Last point, people are going to make mistakes. History repeats itself. Like we know this, right? How do we not make those mistakes again? Well, you don't make mistakes again by using more radical approaches than just hoping to God that things are not going to be as bad next time around because they are, because the next pathogen is going to be even more virulent and it's going to be even spread even faster. So we've got to have the toolkit to like be, Mm -hmm. be able to deal with that. Yeah, I think for the first points that you made, to me, I, my background's in marketing and mm-hmm. everything always to me boils down to what's the marketing issue. Mm-hmm. And the marketing issue, typically on the old school, four P's of marketing, it's promotion and positioning are the two things that oftentimes can give a lift. And obviously for my marketing friends, I get that there's more to it from a strategy perspective and, and things have evolved. But at the end of the day, when it comes to advocating for change, what is advocate, what is advocacy, but promotion by another name. And it's, you know, I think that when it comes to the challenges that this segment is facing is it's, there's marketing issues when it comes to positioning around the roles and promoting the importance of them and promoting the science and promoting the rethinking of the educational programming that's led us to these issues. I'd love your thoughts on that. Am I off base or am I on base? When no, it, you're 100% on down. base. You're on base because I'm thinking of the same thing, which is like, and I've said this often, which is like, why during the course of the pandemic did we not marry our efforts with industry? Like the Amazon people, the other companies, they know what they're doing, right? They know how to market. They know how to sell, right? Mm-hmm. Schools don't know how to do that, right? Public health is not in the business of trying to sell things, right? And so we develop things internally, like we develop, you know, here's like a very basic, example. Like we did, New York City developed a portal for people to sign up for vaccination, kept crashing. Well, okay, but there's like people in the world who do like web design and who do computer programming who would be able to do this very easily. Or the way we were marketing things, we were giving messaging to things like, well, there's all these people who do marketing and communications, advertising agencies all over. There's mad men all over and mad women and then mad people all over New York City. Why aren't we working with them more effectively, right? So Mm -hmm. this notion that somehow academia has to be separate from industry is not one that I buy. My wildest idea was, you know, for people who are very privileged and had power, like we know, and I'm one of those people who has so much privilege that the Amazon person kept coming to my house during the pandemic, right? You know, I needed a book, I needed a saucepan, I needed something, right? 
maybe we should have had a choice. Maybe we should have had like an injector, like a vaccinator on the truck who was there with a person. Like, that's a wild idea, but why is that a bad idea? Why do we keep expecting that people are going to go to health? Why don't we just bring health to that, right? And that's, I think, a big part of what public health also needs to think about. You know, one of my colleagues early in the HIV epidemic or in the middle of the HIV epidemic started to do STI testing in sex clubs, right? Because that's where people are getting infected potentially, right? Not, we can't wait for people to come and go to the doctor. And I think one of the big problems was with vaccinations that we just made it so difficult for people to get to things. And if you have less financial needs and, and you're making people travel far, I mean, you're putting all these impediments in the way. West Virginia had actually a really good turnout because what they did was they, they worked with their local pharmacies and people had trust with those things, right? And people went and got, got their vaccination. So- these are just, it means what I'm trying to say to you here, Gil, is like, you know, like blow it all up, right? It's like, it's not working. And yeah. Well, and you, and you mentioned the, the piece about education and industry, and I think that's a, a valuable point. And, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Ryan Craig, who's the managing director of Achieve Partners on as a guest, and he wrote a book, Apprentice Nation, and how the earn and learn alternative higher education will create a stronger and fairer America. And in that book talks about the need for skills-based education and right. connecting curriculum to workforce needs. And we also, we recently, and we're going to put links to these books and your books in the episode notes for our listeners, but Brian Rosenberg, he joined recently. His book is Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, Resistance to Change in Higher Education, right? And so there, we have a lot of people talking about addressing these issues because I think at its core, how higher ed can help with solving these challenges is rethinking of curriculum and rethinking of how programs can map to careers and where the role programs of public health play in addressing these challenges. I think you hit the nail on the head. That's a big part of this. And obviously, the further down we can go, the K-12 space would be a game changer. Yeah, it would be amazing. Like we do it at Rutgers, we do a high school program every year, which is like a week, like public health camp for students in Newark and then in New Brunswick also. And I'll tell you, like we have these kids who come in who have no idea, who can't tell you the difference between nursing and medicine and public health, but after a week they can. And it's like, yep. you're elevating. I'm totally with you here. I think that it's all about developing. We can't like, right now we're in the middle of this, like, oh, what are we going to do with AI? Well, how do we use AI? right? AI could be beneficial to us, right? So let's not stay the status quo, because I think the status quo ultimately is going to be problematic for higher education. And we have a new group of students. We have students who are more diverse, who have different expectations, who have different ways of thinking. And if we think that we're just going to do the same old things that we've been doing for 40 or 50 years, we're totally missing it. Yep, totally. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned AI because in a couple of weeks, we'll have an episode featuring uh, Laura Magania, who's the president of ASPPH. And we're going to be talking about AI and the impact on the workforce. And I think it's going to be echoes of this conversation but and the role that that can play as a piece of this. But you're right. It goes beyond just, well, what can AI solve all of our problems? And it's more about globally, how does technology generally better support people in these roles? But even beyond that, it's educating ahead of that, right? And changing the narrative around the role and the, and the industry. So, yeah, I was going to say that I think that as an educator, I want to harness the power of these innovations before it gets in the wrong hands, right? So, you know, 70 years ago, people were screaming, oh, TV is going to be the downfall of us. Well, why didn't we harness the power of television? 
Why didn't we harness the power of like social media? We just sat back and complained. I remember a colleague 20 years ago, 10 years ago saying, oh my God, Twitter's going to teach it's going to ruin the way people are writing. I'm like, no, we just need to use Twitter to our advantage to teach yep. people how yep. to write. It's like, I'm like, and my response to her at the time was like, it's not Jane Austen time anymore. Where we're writing like five, five page letters, right? Yep. It's like, yep. and that's where higher ed needs to be like much more proactive and less reactive. And I think yeah. that's exactly yeah. what you're saying. So do another, I, I love to do this on the podcast is talk about past guests so that our listeners go back and they find these episodes and then they end up in this crazy cycle of only listening to FYI and no other podcast. But Paul LeBlanc was the retiring president from Southern New Hampshire University. He was on a couple of weeks ago as well, or last season rather. And he had the same thought process on, well, we got, we messed up with social media, right? And we missed the boat and we handled it. Right now it's an advertising channel and it's a crazy conversation piece. The algorithms have it completely unable to adapt and we can't make the same mistakes with the use of it, with, with the role of AI. Otherwise, we're going to be in a far more challenging position, I think. Fortunately, we've got great minds and ideas around this. And I think we should really, you know, continue these conversations that helps us move in the right direction. So Perry, I thank you for your time and for being a part of this conversation. What are some of the best ways for people to get in touch with you if they want to continue the conversation with you. Yeah. And I love to hear from people. And I, I'm a very good about like writing back and quickly and talking to people because the, the more people are interested and engaged, the better we're going to be. So I would say a couple of places that first, the first is my email, which is perry.haltitis, H-A-L-K-I-T-I-S at rutgers.edu. If you're interested in learning more about me and the work that I've done, you can go to my website, which is perryandhalkitis.com. And that'll direct you to all of my stuff, to like my X account, which Twitter and my other things where you can see my postings and look on Amazon for some of my cool books that I've written in the past and look for the new one that's going to be coming out hopefully the next year and just reach out and talk to me. I'm always looking for really interesting, innovative thinkers to like join the conversation at our school, in our discipline and as students, as faculty. So uh, let's have, a, let's keep the conversation going and uh, let's keep pushing right? Because we need to keep pushing the agenda forward. Absolutely. And I thank you for your commitment. And I think you're being a part of this conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And we will see you next time on FYI. Thank you.